This message by Chad Porter, entitled "Generosity and the Problem Within," was recorded at Wellspring Church on February twenty fourth, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is Nehemiah chapter five, verses one through nineteen. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter five. We will be reading the whole chapter, verses one through nineteen, together. Here now, the word of the Lord. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, You are exacting interest, interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. And so I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, We will restore these things and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his, this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily ration forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared was at my expense, for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on his people. Remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. So far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer once more?
God, we come uh, to you as a people who have been profound recipients of your grace to us, your generous gifts from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, apart from any works that we have done. So we thank you for the opportunity to study, read your word. We thank you how it reads us, and we pray that it would do so this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes to our need and that you would comfort us with your gracious and generous provision. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I wonder as we begin this morning uh, what you kind of think of when you think of generosity. Uh, maybe for some of us we think of uh, pastors or church leaders like myself hitting you up for money, right? Telling you that you need to give more. Uh, maybe you think of the Salvation Army and the people kind of uh, ringing the bell outside around Christmas time or other organizations that you work with or give to. What do you think of when you think of generosity? And is it a positive feeling or a negative one? Specifically, is it a positive feeling or a negative feeling when you think about your own generosity? It's these questions that we are brought to this morning as we look at Nehemiah 5, as we continue our look and our work methodically, chapter by chapter, through this book. To date, this has been a book that the main events of it are essentially the rebuilding of the wall that surrounded the nation of Israel. Today, we stop a look there, and the focus goes really to the people's hearts to what's going on in the hearts of the people of Israel and the leaders of the nation during this time of return from exile, of longing for God to fulfill His promises to them. And so we're taking this time as we study Nehemiah 5 to reflect on these truths. And we will see, I think today, the very simple yet profound truth that the generosity of God makes us generous. The generosity of God makes us generous. It creates in us a heart of generosity. It flows from what we've been given to serve and love sacrificially our brothers and sisters, our neighbor. And we will see this this morning as we kind of work our way through all of what chapter 5 has for us. And to help us in our thinking this morning, if you're a note taker, we have three main headings that we can kind of organize our thoughts on. And those are the plight of the people, the resolve of the leaders, and the hope of the Lord. The plight of the people, the resolve of the leaders, and the hope of the Lord. And so, without further Ado or introduction, let's begin uh, at the beginning of our passage with our first point, the plight of the people. If you remember, the past couple weeks, we've preached through Nehemiah 3 and 4. Uh, and what we've seen there is encouraging in many respects. Things have been encouraging and good. We had Nehemiah, really God, mobilizing this people to do this great work on the wall that are people that are not professionals, people that are not the 
contractors and construction workers that you would expect to be doing this. Just kind of a ragtag group of people who are farmers, largely, and who don't have the experience or the expertise that would normally be associated with building this type of significant infrastructure. You know, anything from, what, 6 to 12 feet thick stone walls without power tools or anything like that is not an insignificant achievement. And so we've seen God mobilizing the people to do that. And not only that, we've seen God mobilizing the people to do that in the midst of opposition, which is what we talked about last week. Significant opposition from all the peoples that surrounded them. In case you are rusty on your ancient Near Eastern history, uh, what happened to the people of Israel was they were sent into exile about 586 B.C. The southern kingdom of Judah was sent into exile in accordance with God's prophecy. God entered into covenant with His people and He said, you need to obey. If you obey, you will live long in the land that I have freely given you. If you disobey, I will bring judgment. And around 586, the Babylonians came in to complete the exile of the nation of Israel with the southern kingdom, and they took them away. They were forced to walk to a land that was not their own. Their city was destroyed. Their kingdom was no more. And they remained in captivity in exile for a period of about 70 to 80 years. And then they were slowly able to come back. The Babylonians were no more. And now the Persian Empire conquered them. And they had a little bit different of a philosophy for how they dealt with conquered peoples. They wanted them to go back to their lands. They let people go back to their lands. They gave them considerable freedom to worship as they wanted to be worshipped. To kind of ingratiate their conquered peoples to them to keep keep out uprising. And so Israel has slowly been able to start going back to Jerusalem, but their land was decimated. The temple was destroyed. The wall was destroyed. And so Ezra Nehemiah is really one book. It, It was one book for most of the history of the church. Not until fairly recently it was split up into two. Ezra Nehemiah talks about the exiles coming back, looking toward the promises that God has made. God continued to say, if you humble yourself, if you call out to me, I will bring you back. I will gather you back in from all the corners of the earth and I will be faithful. I will make this new covenant with you. And so really we get this people here in Nehemiah who are in an already but not yet phase, not unlike ourselves. They're back in the land but they're not really back in the land. It's all kind of, they're, they're looking for and longing what God has promised to them, but they're not seeing it yet. So that's kind of the, the, the atmosphere or the milieu, so to speak, of what people find themselves in here in Nehemiah 5. And so things are going good. God is blessing the work on the temple and now the wall. But then we get to chapter 5. And the interesting thing about chapter 5 is it kind of, the opposition from Sanballat and Tobiah and the others kind of surrounding nations that have uh, reared its head, it, it subsides for the time being. And so you would think that would be a very positive thing, that maybe they're going to get tons of work done, things are going to start to flourish, and it's good. But that's not the case, actually. When the opposition around the outside of the camp decreases, things start bubbling up from within the nation. Things start bubbling up from within the people themselves. Specifically, things were good, but now new problems emerge, and those are the the oppression of the people. Look again at verse 1 with me. There are three complaints to start out that are made to Nehemiah 
by the people. The first is found in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we might eat and keep alive. The first complaint by the people of Israel against their own brothers was, you can't eat walls. Like, we, we need to eat. Chapters 3 and 4 have showed this considerable mobilization of the people to where they were working all the time on the wall. To even Nehemiah's talking about they were working with one hand and they had their sword in the other hand and people were standing watch when they weren't working and then they would switch and, and work instead of stand watch. And so there's this, this great focus of the people on this great work that could seem almost insurmountable of building the wall. But then when the opposition around the outside decreases, we start to see bubbling up. People are like, we need food. Our children are many. The people and their wives are bringing this accusation, saying, we need food. We are so many. We need to get grain. We have to eat. And we are not able to do so. That's the first complaint. The second, and these complaints kind of flow into one another to give us a well-orbed picture of how things are going. The second complaint is in verse 3. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So there are people who needed grain. They needed to eat. You can't eat walls. We need food. And so what happened? They had to borrow. They had to start borrowing to get the money to actually get their fields. No more, no money meant they needed to borrow, which means they needed to mortgage their land. They needed to mortgage their fields to get money to pay for the food to eat. So no food, we need food, goes to no money. We need to borrow and mortgage our fields to get food, which flows into complaint number three. Look at verse four. And there were those who, who also said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. And then in verse five, we get this kind of summing statement of the situation of the people. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. And yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So there was no food. So they needed money to buy it because they weren't able to farm it. Remember, most of these people were subsistence farmers, meaning they farmed for mostly what they fed their family. It's not the farms that we drive past when you drive up in Southern California that are, you know, hundreds of acres big and stuff like that, and they're exporting their... No, they're farming mostly to provide for their family. So no food means they need money to buy food, and all that they have are their fields, so they mortgage their fields, right? But then they also have to pay taxes. Remember Benjamin Franklin said, nothing is certain but death and taxes? It was not any different in the ancient Near East, in ancient Israel. They had taxes that they had to pay to Persia. But... How are they going to do that? There was a famine. They didn't have food to sell. Oh, they would mortgage their fields, but they'd already done that. They'd already mortgaged their fields to get the food for them to eat. So then what did they need to do? They had their children entering into debt slavery. It's kind of like an indentured servanthood. Like their children would serve people for an agreed upon period of time, not to exceed six years, what the Levitical law said. And 
in exchange for this service, they would get money. And so you've got this kind of polarization happening within Israel that we don't see until the opposition subsides. Because what's really shocking about it is that the people are, are they're crying out that they're kind of being oppressed, that they don't have the ability to live and sustain this life. And you would think that just like when we had, you know, we preached through the book of Judges uh, a number of months ago, you would think that this would come on the, as a result of like interaction with the other nations, that they were being oppressed by the people of the outside and they were having all of these things exacted from them and people of the outside. But the, the crazy thing is, is these cries are against their own Jewish leaders. So you had the haves and the have-nots. You had the Jewish leaders who had money and who had things and those who didn't. And even though they came together for this united purpose to build the wall, you still have the leaders who were lending to them at interest, which was specifically actually forbidden in the Old Testament. They became as money lenders to them pawnbrokers who are treating their fellow brothers and sisters not as their family, but as mere business transactions to where you've got these members of the community, these members of the family of God who are languishing, their children going into servant and even talking about some of our daughters are already servants and we don't have land to mortgage to buy them back because other Jews have our land. The people are in great plight, and Israel is guilty. Look at verse 6. Nehemiah responds, and he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, and I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges or a lawsuit against the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. And so it becomes apparent here that what Nehemiah and kind of the governmental leadership of Israel was doing was they were were going around buying people back from this indentured servanthood, this debt slavery, right? They were trying to buy the people back to sustain them in the land, and then come to find out the own Jewish nobles and leaders were still selling them off into debt slavery so that they could be purchased back by the government. It was this weird, vicious cycle that Nehemiah gets wind of with the complaint of the people, and he has a, he comes at them harshly. He brings lawsuit against them. That's that bring charges. That's That's law court language. He says, this is wrong. This is bad. This is not the way that we are called to live as the people of God. The people were oppressed. They were oppressed by the people and the leaders and the nobles are guilty. Uh, An apt analogy comes from uh, an event during the Revolutionary War the uh, Continental Army, I'll, I'll read a story that I came across. The Continental Army suffered badly during the winter of 1777. Clothes were threadbare and blankets were so rare that soldiers sometimes sat up all night rather than sleep and risk freezing to death. 
When the French General Marquis de Lafayette arrived, he saw men whose legs were black and in need of amputation. The trouble was not the severity of the winter, which by some standards was actually a mild one. The issue was that the army had no clothes because merchants in Boston refused to move government clothing off their shelves at anything less than profits ranging from 1,000 to 1,800%. They did this to their own people out of greed. The soldiers were freezing at night and enduring this winter, not because it was a crazy severe winter, but because Boston's own merchants refused to let the goods go for less than a 1,000 to an 1,800% markup on the clothes. It's this picture of like this crazy self-inflicted wound, right? Of acting in a time of national kind of emergency in Israel in ways that are wrong, are bad, are not the way that God has called his people to live. The people are oppressed. They're oppressed by their own leaders. And this is the situation that bubbles up just as we feel like things might be getting good. And it's at here briefly I want to note before we move on to our second point. Kind of an interesting implication from this, the first part of Nehemiah 5. And that is the, the tricky thing of circumstances and the, and the nature of our heart. I think we can have an idea sometimes unwittingly that a change in circumstances, it's kind of the grass is always greener mentality that a change in our circumstances will fix all of our problems. Changes in circumstances may, may very well oftentimes fix problems. There are circumstances we need to plead for the change of, that we need to seek rectifying, that we need to seek to get out of. But the tricky thing is, and the dangerous thing is if we think that the change in our circumstances is going to address the own, our own sinfulness within our hearts. The log that is in our own eye, the sinfulness that you and I struggle with in our own lives, we can, without realizing it, feel like circumstances can change those. They can make it different. If I just was in a different school, if I just had different friends, if I was just in a different job, if I just had a different marriage, I wouldn't struggle with this anger. I wouldn't struggle with this discontentment. I wouldn't be scared all the time. All Whatever the case may be, we need to be mindful and think and caution ourselves against thinking, un, however unwittingly, that a change in our circumstances will fix the issues within our own hearts. Because we see clearly presented here, that's not the case for Israel. As the opposition around the outside subsides and you get more favorable circumstances for all intents and purposes, it does nothing about the sinfulness that is still bubbling up within the hearts of the people. The plight of the people was real and it was self-inflicted from within their community. That's our first point. Second, the plight of the people leads into the resolve of the leaders. Nehemiah brings charges against the leaders. He brings lawsuits. And let's look at 
the leader's response. Look again at verse 8 with me. And I, that is Nehemiah, said to them, We as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. And so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money and grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And then they, the leaders, said, we will restore these things and require nothing from them. We will do as you have said. the lawsuit that Nehemiah brings against the leaders has an outcome which is about as favorable as you could hope for kind of in the story. They are told by Nehemiah, you need to restore the property. I mentioned before that the Mosaic law prevented them from lending at interest to brothers. Lending at interest to outsiders, to foreigners, was a totally legitimate business practice. But To those inside the covenant community of Israel, that was a no-go. You could not lend to them at interest. For example, Exodus 22-25, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, or if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. Exodus 22 says. So the first thing Nehemiah charges them to do is to restore the property, restore what you have taken, restore the fields, the lands, fix the wrongs that you have done. And to the leader's credit, they accept responsibility. It's kind of shocking. They don't do what probably a lot of us in here do, which certainly I do all the time, which is you accept responsibility but you always try to point out at least a little bit why you were justified. About at least a little bit why you should have been able to do this. Or you could, you should be able to understand what I'm thinking and feeling. Or you want to point out, you either do that, you want to show that you were somewhat justified in it, or you want to point out why the person bringing a charge against you should get off their high horse and stop, you know, railing down on me. You're not that much better than me. I mean, I feel, I don't know about you, I feel that deeply in my soul whenever I'm corrected. I feel this primal need to make you understand that it wasn't all my fault. Or you need to understand that I'm not that bad or I'm somewhat justified in doing it. Or you're really coming at me a little bit too wrong or something like that. Those are natural kind of tendencies, I think, that we have when we're confronted with our own failings, with our own sins. But the response of the leaders here is refreshing. They accept blame. They could not answer a word. And they said, we will do as you have said. We will give back all of the land. We will give back the interest that we have been exacting from them. This is difficult to do. do, And it highlights the resolve of these leaders. And to finish it out, it is confirmed, it is sealed, with a covenant. Look at verse 13. Nehemiah says, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house 
and from his labor who does not keep this promise, so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Nehemiah takes up some kind of prophetic language and imagery here. Cloaks often had like a pocket on the outside. And so he did something we see other times in Scripture where he he turns out the pocket inside out and dusts it off and shakes it out empty and says he calls down kind of sanctions, they're called, penalties, punishments, if the people don't do what they have said. If you don't do this, if you don't remain faithful to what you are supposed to do here in the terms of this agreement, may you become like this pocket, emptied, completely emptied out by God, lacking anything and everything. This is a new covenantal agreement that that Nehemiah is entering into the people, and they say, Amen, we will do this. It's sealed, it's ratified with a covenant. The resolve of the leaders is strong in response to their indictment. The resolve, the plight of the people leads to the resolve of the leaders. And thirdly, the hope of the Lord we'll turn our eyes to now. A question that should be in our minds as we're reading this, as we are seeing even the great response of the leaders to the indictment of Nehemiah, is, can we trust them? Will the people do as they have said? Israel has a pattern, a long-held pattern, of kind of disobedience, even in the face of kind of proclaiming that they will do it. We understand, we get it, we will be different. Exodus 19, God delivered His people from the land of Egypt miraculously, brings them out, saves them, destroys their enemies behind them, and Moses comes... Exodus 19 says Moses came and called all the elders of the people and sat before them and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. A few chapters later, Exodus 24, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all his rules. And all the people answered him with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This kind of universal affirmations, absolutely, we will do it. A few, like eight chapters later in Exodus 32, do you remember what happens? Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God, and the people say, he's been taking too long, let's build something. And they build a golden calf to worship, to try to worship God by building this golden calf and express rebellion against everything that God has told them. Eight chapters, this is not a long period of time. It leads us to say, will they do it? Or in Joshua, after Moses dies, the people are brought into the promised land. People who are in there are evicted by God. God gives them victories that they shouldn't really have had and gives them this land that's like ready-made for them. And Joshua, when they get into the land, he says, all right, it's covenant renewal time. It's time to remember our proper response to what God has done for us. He has called us to live faithfully. Will you do it? And the people say, 
They answered in Joshua 24, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the ways that we went and among all the peoples through whom we had passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. That is a great response. A specific remembering of the ways that God has acted for them in the past and a specific commitment to obey Him in the future. And then what happens? We preached through Judges just this past year. We spent some time. We saw what happened after that. God gave them the land, gave them rest. They turned and they worshipped other gods. So God gave them and delivered them up to the, op- to the opposition peoples. Toward them, they cried out for God for His help. And God raised up a judge to deliver them. They were delivered and they turned back to other gods. And we saw that cycle repeating throughout the book of Judges. It's like a toilet bowl, right? It just You're constantly circling around this same uh, cycle. You're getting lower in the toilet bowl because it's getting worse and worse and worse. The judges are getting worse. The people are getting worse to where it culminates in everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The people needed a king. So this is the history. This is the track record that the people of Israel have. And so a question in our mind ought to be, are we to expect that things will be different this time? Even though they had been exiled, even though now they had been brought back, what in the whole whole story leads us to believe that things will be any different now? God continues to be gracious to His people and they continue to turn away from Him. And so that's the question that ought to be burning in our minds as we're reading this. The question of where is the hope for change? Where is the hope for something different to get us away from this cycle of bad things that keeps happening? And the answer is that the hope is found in the generosity of our ruler. I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 15, the former governors who were before me, this is Nehemiah, laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Verse 17, moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense, what, what was prepared was at my expense, For each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet I did all of this. In all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. We learn here that Nehemiah was actually the governor of the people. He was the governor of this province, and as such, he had the right to a food allowance. A food allowance that was for him and his servants to eat, It was also for him to entertain kind of foreign dignitaries, people from foreign nations coming through. This was a food allowance that was the right of the governor that was taken on the backs of the people. It was a tax that was in addition to kind of the federal tax. It was the state tax, right? So it was in addition to the the federal tax to the Persian government, this food allowance tax was to be given to the governors to allow them to function in the ways that they needed to function. And Nehemiah points out here that he did not take it for the entire time. 
He didn't take the food allowance because the burden was too heavy on the people. Moreover, he, he provided for it out of his own money. He paid for it out of his own wealth. We have kind of the, the comparison, the juxtaposition of these people here, which we see throughout the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a flat character in the book. Anybody here a literature person? Study lit in college? Um, you don't have to answer. But uh, flat characters are characters that there's not a whole lot going on. They act in one way. Nehemiah is flatly righteous throughout the book. He's the good guy. Sanballat and Tobiah and the surrounding peoples are flatly unrighteous. They are in opposition. They are the bad guy. And they are set at opposing ends with the people of Israel in the middle. The people of Israel are the only complex characters in this book. The question is, which way are they going to go? Good or bad? And the reason I say that the hope in our text is in the generosity of our ruler is because, yes, Nehemiah is not a book about leadership principles. Nehemiah is not a book about how to be a better person, to be a better leader, to be even a better prayer. That's not what the book is primarily about. It has implications for all of those things. Don't get me wrong. But if we come away from this book thinking that Nehemiah is supposed to just teach you how to be a better person, my friends, you will be crushed beyond comparison because you cannot be like Nehemiah. You will fail. I think as you think about even your own lives and your own response to generosity and how you live and give of your time, of your money, of your talents, of everything that you have, we will see we fail. And yet here is Nehemiah, this figure who is the ultimate in generosity, who is a clear and true pointer to our one true ruler. Jesus Christ, ultimate authority, ultimate rule, who did not count equality be with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and made himself a servant. And he humbled himself even to death on the cross for us. And by his life, he earned God's favor. He earned the gifts. And what does he do? He gives them to his people. We are called co-heirs of God. Heirs of Christ. We are co-made alive together with him. We get Christ's inheritance. Much more than a food allowance that he dispenses to his people, Christ dispenses eternal life earned by him to his people. Because you see, Israel is not good enough to obey the way that they should obey. If the Bible, if the Old Testament, if the Mosaic Covenant and the interactions there has taught us anything, it's that the people cannot do it. They will not obey. But thanks be to God that what the people of Nehemiah, what the nation was looking towards, the fulfillment that they were waiting for when they were in the land has come to us. And what is that? It is the new covenant. The better covenant that God will make with his people 
Jeremiah 32, listen to this. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. The old covenant screams out that you cannot do it. I cannot do it. We cannot be generous in and of ourselves the way that we are called to be. We cannot live and love sacrificially in and of ourselves the way that we are called to live. And the great hope of the gospel, the great hope of Christ Jesus and what Nehemiah so clearly points to is that Jesus has come to rectify the situation. Jesus came to save us from our sins, both in standing before the Father and in our hearts. He has promised that He will write His law on our hearts. He will put the fear of Him that we may not turn away from Him. He has promised to fix what is lacking within us. So as we are brought face to face with what does it mean to be generous and to love people, the the rulers weren't doing anything that we would consider very bad. But they were not loving their brother sacrificially. They were not pouring themselves out for one another. They were not living and walking in such a way that at great cost to themselves to uphold those around them. And the really difficult thing about godly generosity that we're called to here that Nehemiah talks about is it's about so much more than just money. There are some of us who are really good at giving of our time and are terrible at giving of our money. There are some of us who are really good about giving money, but we're terrible about offering our time, our life, our relationships, our emotional endeavors. And so my question to all of us here is, how is God calling us to walk in generosity? To walk in a way that loves our neighbor as ourselves. That seeks not only not to harm our neighbor, but to uphold them, to work for their good. To love and to serve and do everything we can for their good. We can be hopeful because Nehemiah points us to Christ who both shows us the way and enables our actual obedience. So we do not need to run. We do not need to beat ourselves up. We need to take a long, hard look at our patterns of life. We need to take a long, hard look about how we act with respect to others. What do we treasure? What do we spend our time and our money on? Stuff? Entertainment? Status markers? School? Food? Clothing? Health? What are we devoted to? What do we pour ourselves out for? We need to take a long, hard, and honest look at ourselves and come to the conclusion that we are much more like the leaders in Jerusalem than we are unlike them. If we're really honest and we really search our own hearts, we are much more like them than we are unlike them. And yet we take glorious hope in the gospel 
Because our obedience has been purchased for us. Our sanctification, our growth in holiness has been purchased for us. God has said, I will not leave you alone. I'm going to be like that pestering friend that annoys you sometimes because you just want them to leave you alone in your sin. He's not going to do that. He calls us and makes us more like Him. Because it is what is truly best for us and it's what's true source of joy. And so as we consider how we are being called to sacrificial generosity, we remember this morning that God's generosity makes us generous. It will happen. Take comfort from this. Strive hard, just like in Nehemiah. Nehemiah prays and pleads with God for his work, and he strives hard and makes plans. We do the same thing today. We pray and we plead with God for him to work in us, and we take comfort that he will work, and we strive hard. And we work with all the power that he is powerfully working within us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come and confess to you the fallenness of our own lives, the reluctancy we have to offer up certain parts of ourselves, the sins, the idolatries that cling so closely to us even still, and yet we pray that you would give us such a sweet sense of joy in this message this morning, which shows us that we have a hope. We have a hope to not be continually failing with no improvement. We have a hope that we will not always be as we are. We have hope that even if we cannot see it in the moment, you are working in our lives. You are freeing us from the sin that we hate so much. And we do pray that you would give us a hatred for our own sin. That you would give us a godly discontentment with the ways in which we cherish other things above you. And our interactions with others are just symptoms of that problem. We do pray that you would give us a a hatred for our own sin, and that you would give us so much encouragement that you are working for our good. So would you turn us out of ourselves this morning? Would you turn, our, turn us out of ourselves in giving of our money, in giving of our time, in forming of our relationships, in reaching out to people that are not the people that we would normally reach out to, to, to being about loving those who are in difficult circumstances, those who are awkward when they come in here, those who are having trouble connecting, would you make us into those people who sacrificially pour our love out, not to earn your favor, but because we already have it? Give us a view and a picture of your grace that spurs us on to love and good works for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.